You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to season five of the Dramatist Guild Presents Talkback. I'm your host, Christine Toy Johnson. This season is all about how we can challenge the status quo and not only expand the canon of what plays are taught, read, programmed, and used to define the idea of what classics are, but also to ignite it with new actionable strategies. To me, this is not about canceling the existing canon. It's about being intentional about how we make space for additional diverse and inclusive stories, as well as reimagining often produced ones, so that the American landscape of storytelling is truly reflective of the gorgeous tapestry of people that inhabit it. In this episode, we'll talk to writers Diana Burbano and Jason Ma, about their views on making room in the canon for works that center a wider array of characters, cultures, and stories, or are in languages other than English. Thank you so much for joining us today. Would you please introduce yourselves to our listeners, Diana? Hi, everybody. I'm Diana Burbano, and I am a Latinx immigrant playwright and also an actor. And uh, yeah, that's what I do. Great. Thank you, Jason. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Ma. I am a composer writer for the theater, and I identify as Asian American, Chinese American, gay man, and theater artist. Thank you so much. I wanted to talk to you both about how we can challenge the even subconscious notion that the canon in the American theater can only include works in English and center people who speak English, which is, uh, as we all know, really what has been the status quo for since, since the beginning of time. So I'd love to start with asking you each, what are you working on right now? And what have some of your challenges, if there have been, or triumphs, if hopefully there have been, in getting these specific stories out in the world? I'll start with Diana. Thank you, Christine. I'm so happy to be here. Currently, I'm working on a piece called Beheading Columbus, and it's about a pair of Latin sisters who one is darker, one is actually Afro-Latinx, and the other is white Latin, which is something that I'm really interested in talking about, which because we don't discuss it very much. So that's a little bit of a difficult entryway to people who don't understand that we have colorism in this community. And so I write a lot of things in Spanish. And I don't write it for my English speaking audiences, if that makes sense. The Spanish is for people who 
are bilingual and they catch the jokes and they're jokes that are meant to be for people who are bilingual. So it's okay with me if a lot of the time the people who aren't bilingual don't understand it because that's part of the that's part of why I'm writing it in Spanish. I'll just say really quickly, one of the things that has been a bit of a problem for me and for other writers to use Spanish is I've just noticed a lot of resistance to the language. It seems very, obviously, it, yeah, it seems off-putting. And I understand that if you don't speak the language, you may feel that you're not being included. But like I said, that's the point sometimes is to include an a audience that isn't normally isn't normally included at all. I, that's part of the reason I started writing. I never saw myself on stage ever. I feel like it's okay to be a little bit exclusive about the language for a while. I'm so interested in diving into that a little more. What do you say to people who may push back on this concept? And how do you navigate trying to include them? Yeah, of course. I do try to explain that, you know, how sometimes we don't get all the jokes. I certainly, with, say, really young playwrights, there are things that I don't get. I'm just going to be honest about that. And I have to have them explained to me. Or obviously there are things we don't know. I think if you came into the theater knowing everything, you wouldn't have a very good time. I, my favorite kind of plays are plays that are going to be, uh, well, I won't say teaching me things because that sounds didactic, but I really do like to learn things I don't know. So I try to approach it from that direction. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. and I do like, I, I like, I have seen theater in Spanish with subtitles. I have seen theater in other languages with subtitles. For me personally, I kind of like watching theater in languages that I don't know very well without the subtitles, um, mm. just because it's, it interests me what I can learn without them. But I do understand. And the problem with subtitles for me is that sometimes they interfere and they never get translated exactly like what right. you're trying to say. So I feel it loses a lot of the flavor. So I'm a, I don't know about that. I'm a little bit on the fence on the whole subtitle thing, except that I know that if we want to get more of our stuff produced, we're going to need them so people don't feel like they're being left out. Yeah, we're going to talk about this in, in another episode this season about what I recently heard Roger Q. Mason refer to as this this time of anti-discomfort. And I think that, oh, yeah, that, that really, so um, good. it applies yeah. to so much of what we're talking about of challenging that comfort zone, right, for people so that maybe they will learn something in a different way from seeing a piece of theater that isn't necessarily in their first language. Yeah, thank you, Diana. Jason, do you have um, something you want to add to that? Oh, yeah. My gosh, Diana, mm -hmm. you have inspired me so much with what you've just said. I think one thing we have to start talking about is the English-speaking canon versus a global canon mm. of theater. They can't be the same thing. And I think what Diana is also speaking to is that not everything in canon has to be for English-speaking audiences, guaranteed to make them comfortable. And honestly, I've been thinking about subtitles a lot too lately, because I just think that language is part of the culture. Culture is language. Language is culture. They, When you translate into American vernacular English or just American English for audiences, you are really, in some ways, diluting the culture that's being presented on stage. And so you have to find, I think we do have to make people comfortable because 
they do need to be able to understand in their own way what's going on. But I think we also have to acknowledge, and I think we need to let our audiences know that these subtitles are not the complete picture. They don't present the entire idea of what's actually happening. I speak some Chinese and I'm not super fluent, nor am I super literate as far as, and I would never pretend to write in Chinese itself. But even I can see when I look at subtitles how inadequate they are for presenting the sort of social intricacies and cultural specificities of what's being presented on stage. And I think that's something we have to continue to explore as, as artists. I just saw a play, I shouldn't say just saw, but I saw a play at MTC called Golden Shield by this amazing Thai Australian playwright. Her name is Anchuli Felicia King. And she has a translator character who is like the stage manager in our town. And what is interesting about him is that he'll translate directly, but then he'll comment on the translation, basically saying that's just really inadequate to describe mm. what's actually happening. And as the play goes on, there are moments when he literally stops translating because it's beyond words and meaning what's going on mm. stage. And I think that is a really, it was a really lovely exploration of the inadequacy of translation. Things get lost, literally lost in translation. Yeah. So yes, that's, yes that's Diana, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> You've really gotten me thinking. <laughs> yeah. And just, I always joke, it's like English for clarity, Spanish for poetry. Yes, that's so interesting. I, I want to explore the idea of how we illuminate the poetry we're trying to convey when we write in other languages and how the musicality of those languages can transcend language. Diana? I think for me and for the Latin plays that I know are out there, one of the problems that we have is that most of the time, the bigger theaters, especially out here in on the West Coast and some of the regionals, they like a certain kind of story. And I sometimes call it trauma porn. They really love mm -hmm. when it comes to like border stories and they just love that. So I wonder if they wouldn't start looking at different kinds of ways to tell a story, especially by Latin playwrights and explore something a little bit different. I think the problem is the connection points that some of these stories give the audience is mostly for them to watch and feel empathy and feel like, oh, or sometimes feel superior, frankly, I think. So if there were more theaters in some of the, or more theaters that were willing to look at different kinds of stories, I feel like the audience might see that there are things that we're not so different about with our kids and our parents, and that doesn't feel so much, I don't know, there's just so much that gets seen that feels it feels like cartoon Latinos. And I, I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. It's that perpetuation of a comfortable stereotype or stereotype yes. that people are used to seeing. Absolutely. And Jason, can you talk about the production of Twelfth Night that you recently were the composer for? I'm really, I really want to, people to know about how the production, Nelson Eusebio, the director, and you and the artistic team brought out the various specific cultures of the actors in the characters. Nelson, who is fairly a new arrival to his position as associate artistic director at Kansas City Rep, 
wanted to reintroduce classics into the season on a regular basis. But he also wanted to find a way, a different way in than what we think of traditionally, which is, I think this is pretty much the way we, we've been thinking about, let's say, doing Shakespeare, is that we produce a fairly open concept or familiar concept setting. And we try to cast diversity because it's a classic and we can do that now. But all the people of color, are the black artists, the people with differing identities, we all come to this concept. We all fit ourselves into what is usually a white Western gloss of the environment. And we speak and act and we all go back to the majority culture as and we fold ourselves in we assimilate and what nelson was thinking very much about after coming out of lockdown and all the societal tumult that was going on is what do we do now with shakespeare what do we do now with 12th night mm. and what he decided to do ultimately is to cast it first with people he trusted, with people with very strong connections to their own worlds and identities. And then we as writers and designers and everybody, we talk to each cast member about their culture, about their experience of their culture, their specific lived life in the culture. And we created music, costumes, scenic design, everything based on their cultural identity. Our, our Brazilian-American Olivia's house became this lovely tropical 70s, 60s bossa nova-inflected mm -hmm. household because that is her experience of growing up in Brazil. Our Orsino is a Black American man who is a blues gar guitar player, and he, he loved 70s soul hip-hop, a plethora of Black music. And we turned these into the two major worlds of the play, but we also had a, a Festi who was Latino with a guitar and indigenous, Latino, I'm sorry, an indigenous flute from the Philippines. And we incorporated all of this into the world and folded it together and created a new world where all of these influences were the world in which we lived as the play went on. And I... I've never been a part of something so beautiful and organic and respectful. There's such beauty in the idea of not trying to fit into the majority expectation, but really leaning into what makes us individual, right? And, mm -hmm. and bringing that out. I love that so much. When we return, Jason and I talk about some of the technical challenges of writing in languages other than English. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. I want to shift our conversation a little bit to the challenges that Jason, you and I, full disclosure, you and I have been lifelong friends and also collaborators for a really long time. The problems we have come into with various writing software programs that uh, do not support the diacritical markings of various Chinese dialects. So we're not writing in Chinese, but we're writing, for example, names that that are Chinese that would have existed in the time period in which we were writing. But we really had to search for a font <laughs> that would that would accurately document these markings. And I, I wonder if either one of you wants to speak to any issues you might have come into with, with writing programs or software programs. And I, I also am a very big fan of Final Draft. I've used Final Draft since it was in like maybe version two or something. So I'm a big fan <laughs> of, of theirs. But I do find that um, that this is one of the one of the shortcomings that I, I hope to address uh, with them uh, in person at some point. Yeah, it is a shortcoming. It doesn't, one of the big problems I have is that it doesn't add the accent marks, um, which not a big deal. I can do them myself, but it does slow me down because I'm a two finger right. typist anyway. <laughs> but then it doesn't, when you do spell check, it won't spell check the Spanish. And I know that's a small thing, but it does get to be a pain to have to go back and forth and make sure that all the, everything is correct. And because also the punctuation in Spanish is different. Yeah, it's definitely a bit of a, it's, it's, I don't think it's as big a problem for me, but it's irritating. Yeah, It's like a microaggression, right? It's oh, a thing absolutely. that's annoying and it's a thing that's excluding. And um, I don't use Final Draft because I just feel like um, a, a Mac word processing program is much more friend, uh, you know, friendly, user-friendly for what, what we're trying to do. This is a larger issue. It is, we literally have a writing program that that is supposed to be the industry standard of professionalism. And Chris and I have had to basically find the one font that will support this. <laughs> and wow. even so, it the won't let us do italics. Actually, yeah, it's, and it's not a very good looking font and it creates formatting problems. And it also gives this air of amateurism. I'll just say mm -hmm. it doesn't look right. Your font is your business suit when you're a writer. It is what you want to present to the world and what you want to say about yourself as a writer. And we have been reduced to, I guess you would call it like the pink toe shoes of fonts. We are not, <laughs> we are people of color and we have to put pancake on our toe shoes to Brilliant. look right. And wow. it's not right. It's, we should be able to use the marks that we need to use. And like Chris said, it's not even like we're writing in Chinese. We are just wanting to use some pinion markings so that actors will be assisted in the pronunciation of the Chinese names and geographical locations that we have in the piece. I'll just say, I think it is annoying. It's, it seems minor, but when you add it into the mix of all the other things that we have to struggle to push through, it just becomes one more thing. 
to have to stress over. It really does, now that you say it that way, which I think is quite brilliant, it's it's sort of a denial that there are people in this country who speak other languages or who don't even don't speak the way you do. I'm neurodivergent. And so some, the reason I like Final Draft is because it does all the work for me in a way. <laughs> I'm not publicly shaming Final Draft because, as I said, I'm a big fan of theirs. But I did have this experience where I contacted customer service, which has always been extremely responsive and very quickly to me, and said, I'm having this issue where I need to find I need to find a font that will allow me to use some pinion diacritical markings. I'm writing in English, but I'm, I'm, for example, using these Chinese names and they need to have markings on them that are correct. And the person sent me back a link to the font in Mandarin. And I just, I, that just pointed out to me that there is a fundamental breakdown in even the understanding that uh, there, there can be, or there are writers who are writing in English, but about a different culture, and those cultures might have places, names, different expressions that need to be accurately accented or it, whatever you want to say about that. And so I, I just feel like this, we don't really talk about this very much. And I'm very grateful to the both of you for having this conversation with me about it. Let's see, I wanted to talk, let me ask you both, what other thoughts and ideas do you have? When I first raised this question in the uh, in having this episode, what other things came to your mind that you would like to mention? I was thinking about when Jason was talking about Twelfth Night, one of the things that we're working on out here is allowing young actors to speak in their own dialects, especially Latin actors, because there's a perception that the, for example, the Istele accent was heavy, but it's definitely like a regular accent, right? And somehow allowing that accent to exist, but make it clearer, make it easier to understand the words as any actor would, but not completely erasing it. I think the English allowed people to use their own Yorkshire accents years and years ago. So I think we're behind on that as well. That is so interesting. That's such an interesting point. Jason, do you have anything to add to that? I think that that is an interesting thing that we should be exploring, especially with classic works. And also, again, you know, when we, when we all kind of default to American standard stage English, we're not challenging people, are we? Um, we're not we're actually in some ways participating in erasure and so tricky because we are so used to hearing things in a certain way and we are comfortable with that and to the point where we're told what is right and what is wrong i think this is a really interesting idea and i think i'm sure that as we go forward we'll be hearing more and more different ways of pronouncing words on stage, on American stages. And I, I look forward to that. I can't wait, actually. You've got me really excited about this, yeah. Diana. Well, it's, it supports the idea that there are a wide, like you said, a wide variety of accents and people's vernacular and how we reflect that on their stages. On the flip side of that, in I don't think it it hasn't happened to me lately, but I know that it was very common practice back in the day to be asked to just do an 
quote-unquote Asian accent. And people didn't really care (laughs) what country it was from, just that it sounded like something foreign (laughs) that resembled... Yeah, Jason, you can, I'm sure you have the same experience, but this, the lack of specificity reflecting the lack of understanding that there are indeed different cultures is something that was very widespread. Yeah, it's not, I don't think it's gone. I know that fairly recently there was a Broadway revival of a show with a large Asian cast where mm-hmm. the person who was in charge of dialects basically told a large number of people in the room that they should just just speak the way you do at home with your mother. Oh my God. And we'll call it a day. And we're talking about a, an API cast. Yeah. We're not talking about a cast of people all from the country that was being portrayed in that project and the laziness and also just the dismissiveness of that kind of and this is a professional dialect person this was a speech person hired for this production at a major theater it will continue to happen and luckily i believe more and more people now are willing to push back against this kind of disrespect i i just there are these old battles that we continue to have to fight. And I've been doing this for so long, and yet things don't seem to move much. It's a little disheartening, but it also gives those of us whose plays take forever to get produced a chance to stay relevant longer because the same problems are still the same problems. So in a way, it's a double-edged sword for me. Yeah, I keep saying it's the same objectives, but different obstacles that we are trying to get these stories out in the world. And sometimes some, I think in some ways, doors are opening more and more, but then there's still that barrier of convincing the gatekeepers to that that they are the stories are relevant that they will be received in in a way that we hope they will be received. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about that and how we can keep forging ahead. I think one very important thing and is to find a dialect coach who is actually from the culture or a culture that understands that has been perhaps has not been represented in the theater. Find a coach that can differentiate that because I also have been in rooms as an actor with dialect coaches coaching us in our accents and thinking to myself, (laughs) <laughs> Our ex- we're just as fluid as you guys are and we use new words and we play and we everybody it's just it's it's not that strict either interesting yeah. yeah i'd love to know if you both have ever worked with a dramaturg as well that is from the specific culture that you're writing in no nope <laughs> nope <laughs> yeah no, I do. I have been lucky enough to work with Latin dramaturgs, but I'm a Colombian. I like to write about Colombians just because we never see Colombians. So, I, and uh, yeah, I've only done one one of my plays where I had Colombian actors in it, which is something else we could talk about too. Like, what's for me pan Latin? I certainly am. I'm not advocating for only Colombians can play Colombians because otherwise I never would have had an acting career. But there is something to to also making sure how do we let the audiences know that 
we're not all the same. We come from different cultures. We have, right. di- like you say, different languages, different accents, different, the slang in Spanish is completely different from country to country. That's something also that needs, we need to give our theater audiences a little clue on, I think. And that's probably on us as writers. I've been hearing uh, <laughs> echoes through through the industry of lately of people basically trying to confine actors of color to their countries of origin. And that worries me greatly because I feel like brown actors already have so little opportunity. And for us to be cordoning people off into these tiny little boxes when we never would ask white actors to do such a thing worries me. So I feel like the specificity of culture and authenticity needs to come from the writers themselves and that the actors do their job, which is to act and to inhabit those cultures and the specific behaviors and languages and accents of the people that they're portraying. Yes. Which leads me to another subject, which is, therefore, (laughs) the writers of these plays and musicals really need to understand and know and be familiar with and inhabit the culture that they're writing about as well. And writers should know when it's appropriate for them to write about these worlds and when maybe they should step back and sit down. Yeah, so I'm glad you bring it up because just like you're hearing some people are being boxed into only portraying their specific cultural background, there are also writers, I've had this experience actually myself, and I'm hearing it from others, people from historically excluded communities who are being told, you can only now write about your community, even though you have lived in a white majority society for your whole life, if you have, etc. What I what I'd love to ask you about is, if we look at the plays and musicals that are in the Western canon, how can they coexist with the inclusion of stories from the global majority. We've had golden age musicals that take place in uh, various countries that are not America, written by white writers. And how do they fit in now? I think we always have to look at things through three different lenses, right? When it was written, what it was written about, and today's sensibilities. Yeah, I used to joke that I played all two of the Latin characters in musical theater. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think, I think one of the things we're going to have to share is that, that there are plays out there that can speak to the alternative canon. I, out here at South Coast Repertory, they just did The Little Foxes and they paired it with Brandon Jacob Jenkins Appropriate, which was great, you know, Mm. because it, it really, it revived a play that I think many of us have seen, but in conversation with the other play, it becomes something different. I thought that was a brilliant idea. It takes a little bit of legwork by the literary department, but so much of it is diversifying the artistic side of the theaters and diversifying the boards of the theaters to start looking at that and start creating their own canon. I mean, give them the power to think, oh, we're on the forefront of the new canon, do you know? Uh, Let me speak to the musical theater canon. I'm still fighting the old battles because I feel like we are moving more slowly. Honestly, it is moving more slowly in the musical theater. And that's partially a result of economics and tradition, shall we say. For us, 
the two biggies, King and I and Miss Saigon, have been basically the two sort of tent poles of the canon for decades now. And both have become problematic. Both have artistic merit, especially The King and I, which is probably one of the most beautifully written pieces of musical theater. I personally will probably never do that show again as an actor, but I acknowledge it as a beautiful piece of writing and storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think the solution really for, for the canon, for the canon to take care of it, to nurture it, is to start including more portrayals of Asian people so that it just, the King and I becomes one of many as opposed mm -hmm. to the one mm -hmm. representation of, and it will take the sting out of it for people who are rightly offended by what, what takes place in that show. It, I think that one of the things that we have to do as writers is we do still in the musical theater, we need to find some way to, how do I put this? Keep the traditionalists comfortable mm -hmm. while we introduce them to new people, new worlds, new writers. We can't just tear it down. It is, it is a storied institution, the musical theater canon. It is a uniquely American art form. And I think that the bigger theaters and the smaller theaters and the commercial producers are all starting to open up their minds. I know for myself, a piece that I wrote just about 25 years ago, which was outright hated and rejected from the onset, eventually began to, began to be taken seriously by people to being considered by people to finally getting a production 25 years later. It's, it's a young man's piece, but it took that long for, I would say, the entrenched powers that be to understand and maybe open up their minds and their hearts to the idea that there could be a piece like this that centered around Asian people where they were not existing in reaction to the West, but existing mm -hmm. on their own in their own mm -hmm. worlds. And it's hopeful to me. It's helpful to me that more and more pieces that center themselves around people who are not white are being considered and actually being produced in our industry. I think we just have to keep writing, and I think we just have to keep our eye on what made us fall in love with musical theater as writers. Yes. And yes. if we keep that in our writing and tell our own stories in our own way, people will come to it. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. I'm going to wrap us up here. Thank you both so much for your insight. It is the tip of the iceberg of this conversation. And I'm appreciative of you both, your generosity and your wisdom and your talents. Thank you. My thanks to Jason and Diana. This episode was produced by Amy Von Masick and me, Christine Toy Johnson. Our music was composed by Andrea Daly, recorded at John Marshall Media in New York City. Special thanks to Sound of Birmingham in Birmingham, Alabama. The Dramatist Guild Presents Talkback is a production of the Dramatist Guild of America and distributed by the Broadway Podcast Network. Let us know what you thought about the episode by using hashtag DGTalkback. As always, to be continued. 
Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.